I may not be human, but I don't quit. Never have. No matter what they throw at me, I never give up, never surrender. Welcome to the Mad Max Minute Presents Waterworld H2O Minutes at a Time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minutes 125 and 126, which begin with Helen justifying her belief that dry land exists and end with Gregor cackling like a madman, as he is wont to do. (laughs) Helen completes her thought from last week, saying that's why it, being dry land, is so hard to find. And the Mariner point blank asks her, Why do you believe in it so much? Which is very conversational of the Mariner. Most of this dialogue so far in a good portion of this minute is really just Helen talking. The Mariner rarely responds to her and other than looks. Looking at the book, there are so many aspects of these two minutes that are just shuffled around because in the book, Helen has her I can't go on speech before she has her we don't belong on water speech. Oh, That kind of sounds weird. And all of that happens before Helen talking about how much she misses Enola. Okay. Huh. It's very shaken up. But in the book, it is the same. Her justification, dry land must exist because humans were not made for the sea. They've got hands and they got feet. They're supposed to walk. There's not much additional stuff in the book except for her saying that they were supposed to walk on something solid. Okay, which is excellent reasoning, and I really appreciate that she makes that connection, because she's right. If dry land didn't exist, they would all be like the Mariner. Mm -hmm. You don't have a species built to live on artificial structures. That's not how nature works. The Mariner seems to be puttering around, leaving Helen to lie on the deck and muse to herself. In the movie, she says, I miss her sound, don't you? And he is off in his own world talking about how he might get some hydro out of their busted up thing. In the book, it goes a little different. They seem to have a actual conversation. Helen says, I miss the sound of her, her singing, she said. Do you? He looked away. I miss my boat. For some reason, this didn't strike her as a cold thing for him to say, so much as a sad thing. You know, Helen said, you're so much better at being alone than I am. And it's then, in the context of the book, that he goes through his backstory like we talked about last week. Oh, oh, that's better. Oh, I like that. That makes so much more sense. Things do feel disjointed. The order of operations. Yeah. If I had the desire to go through and re-edit this movie based on the re-edit of the movie that we're watching. (laughs) Right. And just keep going deeper with it, I would try and structure things more like the book. I think we should have rejoined them more like this scene where Helen is in despair and let's work through her despair to the point where she seeks comfort in the Mariner's arms. Mm -hmm. But I like how Helen is able to understand that when he says, I miss my boat, it's not him being snide. Right. It's not him saying my boat is worth more than Enola. He's saying my boat means to me what Enola means to you. Mm Mm-hmm. That's how important my boat is to me, which that sentiment has been expressed in the past. We already know this about the Mariner because the boat would never try to kill him, try and slit his throat while he sleeps. Like, we know these things. 
about the boat. As you mentioned, Helen is... Is in the pit of despair. Right. Yes. She mentions that she can't go on, not without Enola, not without Dryland. She doesn't want to live if there's nothing left to hope for. The Mariner offers up that she's still here. It's not a situation where nothing's left. She is still around. And I appreciate that Helen thanks the Mariner for saving her because he definitely didn't have to. Continuing on the thought process of a few minutes ago, this would have been a fantastic place for them to start a physical connection, have that conversation, and then have sex. Because there is this idea of she is in despair and without hope. He says, but you're still here. Thank you for saving me. Natural progression into, I don't know, thank you sex? I'm not sure. But (laughs) comfort sex. Natural progression. I want to dive back into the book. We start off with Helen. I can't go on, she said, and tears trailed wetly down her cheeks, not without her or any hope of dry land. He was staring at her. How could a face be so blank, so unreadable? Was that disapproval or support in those eyes? Who knew? Who in hell knew? I, I don't even want to live, she said. If there's nothing left, if there's no hope, there's us, he said. And now she understood. It was affection in those hard eyes. How wonderful that expression might have seemed to her before his boat had been turned into a chunk of charred driftwood, before those savages had stolen away the sweet child who represented to Helen, both literally and symbolically, the hope of a better tomorrow. She reached out for the bottle in his hands, the bottle that I mentioned the other week, containing the pages that they got from the drifter. Yes. With its brittle, precious pages, she could see children running in one of the pictures, on land, ground, earth. She showed him, this is what the ancients had, which is exactly what we dive into here in the minutes, where Helen says, thank you for saving me, and the mariner says, you can thank the ancients. And she says, this is what they had. But in the context of the movie, what is she referring to? This is what they had. It makes no sense. Right. It, It doesn't really make much sense. It does seem like there's something missing there. And then the Mariner continues saying, this is what they made of it. This is why I am what I am. In the book, Helen says, this is what the ancients had, gesturing straight at the pages. He gestured to the sea and to his ruined boat, and this is what they did to it. She thought about that for a moment, then nodded. You're right. You're right. So how do they know that the people did this? That is a consequence of how people treated the planet. I think it's a general hypothesis. Back on the atoll, Gregor mentioned it to the Mariner when the Mariner was in his cage. The ancients, they did something terrible, didn't they? Ah, yes. So yes, this yes, is a yes. callback to that. Okay. Continuing on in the book, he gestured contemptuously to the gills behind his ears, and it's also why I am what I am. Standing, gathering determination around himself like a protective cloak, he strode over to the twisted water purifying system and began to examine it, searching for parts that could be salvaged. The drift of the wrecked ship soothed her into ironic contemplation, a kind of deep calm. It's funny, she offered. I always thought dry land floated. And that conversation we saw at the tail end of last week. Oh, so out of order. (laughs) The Mariner takes this conversation and directs it towards survival and determination. This whole time they've been having conversation, he's been doing things. Mm -hmm salvaging, organizing, taking stock of what there is. And he notes that I may not be human, but I don't quit. That statement doesn't really make much sense to me. First of all, he's not that not human. 
Okay, he is human. Okay, he's human. He's a mutation, but human he, is the baseline. Yes, he's a human plus. It's like, but he's you, still human. It's like when you take a Honda Civic and you add a bunch of aftermarket parts to it. Right. If you change out the engine and you add ground effects and a spoiler and you swap out the wheels, sure, you have created a highly tuned competitive racing vehicle, but it's still a Honda Civic. Exactly. I don't know. His statement just doesn't really make any sense to me. I may not be human, but I don't quit. Never have, no matter what they throw at me. The sentiment would be better communicated by, no matter what they throw at me, no matter what they do to me, I've never quit and I never will. That's what he means. He means, I've been through this. I've been through crap. I've been through everything and I've never quit before and I'm not gonna now. It's interesting to me that they don't take the opportunity to share what drives the Mariner day in, day out. What is the thing that helps him get up in the morning and keep sailing? What is the drive that keeps him from just not doing that? Yeah, <laughs> it would have been a great place for some more backstory, some elaboration on the hints we got earlier with the jazz and the nighttime breezes. Mm -hmm. Good spot for it. It would have been really nice to hear something along the lines of him choosing to be alive and be free because of the time he spent in captivity with his father. Yes. That he determined within himself that as soon as he got away from his father and gained his freedom, that he would live free. And that is the drive that keeps him going. It would have been nice to hear that, to get a little bit more characterization about the Mariner other than he's a loner. He's always been alone and he likes being alone. Right. I want to have a reason to think that his crappy attitude is a good thing. Mm -hmm. This is what has kept him alive thus far. I want to know that. I want justification for his crappiness. And his history provides that. If that's how you lived... Hated and reviled and captive until you were 10 or 11 when you murdered your father and stole his boat. Yeah, you would behave like the Mariner behaves. But we don't get any of that. We get no reason to be sympathetic towards him other than a few small hints. Mm -hmm. Something I really, really don't like about this scene is what happens next is he says, no matter what they throw at me, I dot, 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 and he kind of trails off. And Helen is kind of sitting right in front of him, down lower than he is. It's the same position they it's were in last time. It's the exact time. same position they were in last time we did this scene. And she does the same thing. She makes physical contact to comfort him and to gain comfort from him. And then as the scene fades, she goes up on her knees to reach up and kiss him. Right. There's it's the exact same scene. There's an implication of a secondary romantic encounter. And you know how we know that? Because when we fade back in, they're both asleep. Yep. They're lying one next to each other. She's got her arm over him. And I'm pretty sure that the only reason this second implication exists in this scenario is because they wanted to have this conversation between Helen and the Mariner, which I think is good. I think it's genuinely good. But there is a high angle looking down from Gregor's airship where it shows the two of them 
lying together like this. And because they wanted to use those shots, they had to justify, okay, why are they lying down on the deck together when we've seen the Mariner doing all of this puttering around? Yeah. Why else, other than a sexual or intimate encounter, would they be lying down next to each other? The whole thing is out of order. Yeah. In this extended edition, we fade out from Helen reaching up to the Mariner and leaning into a kiss. We fade to a shot of Gregor's airship flying through the clouds. So that when we cut back to the burned out wreckage and we're at a very high angle seeing Helen and the Mariner, Gregor drifts in, obviously hanging from a crane. And it's there (laughs) that we hear him first cry out for Helen and the two of them wake up. In the theatrical edition, Helen lying up against the part of the boat or the net or whatever she is, we see her lying there and then we hear Gregor shouting from off screen. So he doesn't come upon them post-coital like this. He comes upon them the first post-coital where she's asleep and the Mariner's off doing some work. Exactly. Oh, interesting. A re-edit really could clean this up a lot because it's messy and out of order and it really feels that way. Absolutely. I don't think the movie portraying Helen and the Mariner's time on the burnt trimaran as them basically talking about things being intimate, talking about things, being intimate. In the book, it shows that they have been doing other things. By the following afternoon, they had constructed a raft from the rubble of the ship. She could tell it was difficult for him. It must have been like picking through the bones of a loved one. But they constructed the raft, or mostly he did, and they set out to sea, bobbing, resting. Their eyes closed as they waited for the wind to decide which way to take them. So in the context of the book, even after the one love scene, the next time we join them, they have been productive. Mm -hmm. Helen wasn't lying there musing to herself. The Mariner, with Helen's help, fashioned together some sort of floating structure, and they started drifting for the most part. Yeah. Doesn't seem like their raft was actually that well constructed based on what they had to work with, but they got down to business, and as they were sitting there with their eyes closed, then you hear a voice cry out, Helen, and the voice echoes over the water, and Helen wonders if she was dreaming. Her eyes fluttered open, and she looked into the puzzled face of the mariner. Is that you? Their eyes searched the sea, but then, seeing nothing, they shrugged at each other. Who was talking to them? The great provider? Or Poseidon, maybe? No, 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 (laughs) out here, and then drifting into view just above them and to the right, an impossible apparition popping into view was the cigar-shaped dirigible with its quiltwork balloon and sitting in his chair controlling it all, old Gregor. All right. Definitely ending this scene on a high note. And the look on Helen's face is so grateful and joyful and kind of (laughs) disbelieving. Oh my gosh, we got out of this. There is hope again. Mm -hmm. She was done. She was ready to go. Yeah, this was definitely the lowest point that Helen had faced in this entire story so far. Do you want to necessarily say that it was the Mariner that pulled her out of it? That him talking about how he never gave up, never surrendered, and that was enough to give her the hope to carry on? In the movie, no. Yeah, I don't think it was done very well in the movie. No. In the movie, they were getting by till they died. And that involved finding comfort in each other, and that was it. 
and they were just going to be done. The Mariner said, I don't quit. I never have. But there was no plan made. He says, I'm not going to quit. And then doesn't follow that up with anything. <laughs> there, was, <laughs> I, there was nothing there. So no, the Mariner didn't have any part in helping Helen carry on. He had a part in helping Helen survive till surviving was done. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think it would have been nice to show the Mariner more actively putting a raft together. Yeah. And Helen would then see the Mariner doing something to help improve their situation. And there's just something about being idle and seeing someone else not be idle that rouses you to activity. Oh, for sure. And Helen is not one to sit idle. She wants to help. She wants to work. She just needs to be taught how, which she has made that point a couple of times previously. I would have loved to see the Mariner looking to Helen and giving her a task, handing her a piece of rope and saying, let's do something. And she would hop to to do that something. And we would see the two of them working together. Right. It reminds me of a scene in Shrek where Shrek has been shot by an arrow and Donkey is freaking out. And Fiona, to bring Donkey around to sanity, gives him a task. Go look for a blue flower with purple leaves. Can't remember, but we're going to say that. And he goes off and does that. And in reality... First of all, Donkey's colorblind. He has no idea what he's looking for. <laughs> but Fiona just wanted to give him something to do so that he could focus on something other than his friend was shot. Right. Helen is wallowing in yeah. her despair. She needs a task. She needs to be distracted. And honestly, even if the task he gives her isn't particularly productive or helpful, it doesn't matter. It's clear from Helen's current mood that whatever the mariner was able to do it was not enough to revive her spirits and hope for the future oh my goodness which hey you know what he never said that he was good at it nope nope he doesn't quit doesn't give up just keeps trying yeah he's better at sailing he's better at handling a vessel than he is i would assume at handling helen <laughs> It might say something about his physical prowess mm. that in this scene where she's lying down and he's off doing something else that she is at her lowest point. And that's after the love scene. I don't know. Oh. I, I'm just chuckling to myself here. Yeah. Because I'm a 12-year-old, apparently. Right. Well, I think that highlights the poor editing in this scene. It does. Is that that doesn't match. The point of the love scene was to find comfort in each other. And then the very next thing we get from Helen is that she is in despair. <laughs> <laughs> if you take all of these things, move them all around, it'll be a much better scene in the long run. I don't yeah. know. Maybe I will be inspired by listening back to this when we release the episode to go back and do a bunch of editing myself. And then, I don't know, I can release the edited version of this scene somewhere for people Ooh, to watch. I don't that's know. That's quite the promise you're making. We'll see how I feel about it. That's all I'm going to say. All right. I don't promise anything. I'm just saying I might because of when we record it versus when we release it. I might feel more up to the task later on. I don't know. Okay. 
But I want to say that it is very lucky that Gregor shows up, but we are going to discover in next week's episode that him finding them is not him stumbling across them randomly. There is a very specific reason as to why he was able to track them down, but it is not divulged in this clip. All he says at the end of this clip is smart thinking, and we are going to figure out what he's talking about next week. So we're going to put a pin in things for now. We're going to come back next week. Helen and the Mariner will climb aboard Gregor's airship. He will take them to where the survivors of the Atoll attack have gathered, and Gregor will make a breakthrough in deciphering Enola's tattoo. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. Waterworld was written by Peter Rader and David Tui, directed by Kevin Reynolds, and presented by Universal Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute. And like us on Facebook by searching MadMaxMinute and join our Facebook listener group, MadMaxMinute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit Patreon.com slash MadMaxMin. Thank you for joining us for Waterworld Episode 63. We'll see you next time.